1: Let's get down to the MFA Network conference in Miami where Leslie Picker is sitting down with Citadel's Ken Griffin. Let's listen in live.
2: Well, thank you very much, Ken. Thank you, MFA and Brian, for hosting and for uh, allowing us to have this conversation. Uh, We were saying before we came on, this is such a good day to have this conversation. You've got the S&P 500 uh, at a record high yesterday, kind of, um, you know, mixed picture today. but in September, you said that you were anxious about the market, that it was kind of in the seventh or eighth inning. Are you still feeling that way? Do you feel like things are kind of too expensive at these levels?
0: So, so first of all, welcome to Miami, and, <laughs> and I, know, I know Leslie's very happy because it's, it's 70 and sunny today. Yeah. So it's a good day to be here to talk about the market, which is reaching all-time highs. And, we do look like we have put some of the economic anxiety of Q4 behind us. Good payroll numbers, good GDP growth, and most importantly, inflation is moderating at a, a pace that's frankly better than the market anticipated. We may get Goldilocks, we may get a soft landing or even no landing. We may be looking at a, at a moment in time where inflation this year is, is low twos. The Fed can start to cut rates come this summer and we will see unemployment touch up a little bit but the overall economy looks pretty damn good right now and i think this is a real change in mindset from where we were september october last year
2: so you think essentially mission accomplished no more rate hikes because i know you you kind of left open that possibility in the fourth quarter that there was potentially another rate I, i
0: think there was a possibility at the start of q4 last year that we could see another rate hike
2: and now you feel like that's been taken Probably off Probably
0: not going to happen. I mean, obviously, you, know, you could have an exogenous shock like an oil price shock. Mm-hmm. That would put inflationary pressures back into the economy. So there's, there's a possibility. But right here, right now, and we, we deal with the reality of the present, is inflation is coming down, core inflation is coming down, and it gives the Fed the room to stop raising rates and potentially to start to cut come this summer.
2: Do they need a recession to cut rates?
0: So that, that's gonna be the real trick, is can they actually start to cut rates before we have a recession and walk out of the inflationary shock that we've been through as victors? Now, one of the things that's very different about this economic cycle the most is that we're still engaged in, in a reckless level of federal spending. So that's creating a very different backdrop for the economy than, than any point in prior history. You know, with, at, at this moment in the economy, you'd expect the federal deficit to be, to be close to 2 3%. In the Clinton days, we had a surplus when the economy looked like it does today. But we're still spending, at a rate of deficit spending, of roughly 6%. So, we have an economy that feels really good right now but there is an aspect of this that it's going to come on the credit card that our kids are going to pay. And frankly, if you're 40 or 30, you're probably going to pay the bill too when you go to retire in 25 years. This government spending has got to get in check. It's creating this, this bit of euphoria right now, but it will come with a hangover.
1: And
2: we'll get into politics um, in a little bit. But the idea of cutting rates, which the market has basically baked in at, these, at this point, at least um, as it pertains to the summer time frame. Um, doing that, while there is so much fiscal spending, wouldn't that be inflationary?
0: So, so that is inflationary. The combination of, of cutting rates and, and these very high levels of government spending are inflationary. The, the issue comes down to many of the shocks that caused inflation to go higher have been reverting. So we're enjoying, in a sense, the inflation... Um, piece dividend, that the energy shocks or food price shocks that hit the economy two years ago are reversing and helping to create an easier environment for the Fed to navigate. And then the labor market, it has definitely softened a touch from where we were 18 months ago. You're seeing companies ever so slightly back away from the pace of hiring, back away from the, the incredible increases in wage growth that needed to happen to attract employees, That's giving the Fed a little bit of help right now in terms of their battle against inflation.
2: Let's talk a little bit about uh, geopolitics um, because I know you're you're focused outward. Um, Citadel Securities, for example, has recently expanded its ambitions in China, reportedly bidding for some of the Credit Suisse business in the region, uh, reportedly explored licenses, which would make it the first foreign market maker in China. And it's made some key hires in the region. Are you dissuaded at all by China's growth slowdown? You know, for example, yesterday's headlines about the fourth liquidation of Evergrande. Any of that concerning to you or do you think that's still a, a market that you'd like to make big headway into? Look, I,
0: I think the bigger issue with China is the, is the tension between America and China. Like that's, that's the big issue. The big issue is not the liquidation of Evergrande or their GDP growth will be slightly slower than it has been in the past. The big issue is the geopolitical tension between the world's two most important economies. And I, I really do hope that, that we continue to maintain some sense of the detente that's been playing out over the last few months. You know, both countries are significant trade partners with one another. Both countries are important to the global growth story. And it is important from my vantage point that we maintain a semblance of, of a constructive tone in our relationship. And going with this would be, for example, the recent election in Taiwan where the the, uh, new president clearly is more in the pro-independence faction of the Taiwanese uh, political class, and yet China was able to be very thoughtful in its choice of words and to, to, I wouldn't say embrace the moment, but to play through the moment in a constructive way. And we need that tone in this world. If there were a rupture around Taiwan, it would be catastrophic to both the Chinese and the American economy, and by catastrophic, I think you're looking at Great Depression circumstances.
2: If there were some sort of, you say rupture, a war, some sort of attack?
0: If we lost access to Taiwanese semiconductors, how many weeks until Tesla stops making cars? Or GM, or Ford, or Boeing stops making planes? Those chips are used in every part of our economy. Estimates range from a GDP hit of between 8 and 10% if we lost access to Taiwanese semiconductors. So it's really important as a matter of national economic security that we're able to maintain peace in that region of the world
2: What about American competitiveness with China? Uh, You you touched on that briefly. Elon Musk said last week, the only thing stopping Chinese EV makers is protectionism, basically trade barriers. BYD dethroned Tesla in the fourth quarter as the top EV seller. And then just this morning, GM came out, reported a steep decline in operating income, in part due to losses from its EV unit. What do you make of the, the state of American competitiveness with China, especially as it pertains to some of our, our key, uh, key industries, EVs, chips, et cetera?
0: So you, solar, EVs, consumer electronics, these are all areas in which the Chinese have done extraordinarily well from a competitive perspective. And, and watching BYD surpass Tesla in global sales was a, was a bit of a heartbreaking moment. But we, we often lose sight of the fact that the Chinese economy represents 1.4 billion people. So they have a huge advantage when it comes to simple economies of scale, combined with a strong education system that produces four times as many STEM graduates. We've got a real competitor in China. And, and Elon's right that the, that the West has to grapple with the issue. Europe in particular, California, trying to achieve a very, very different future in terms of how we, how we consume energy and an EV-led future in particular, California wants no internal combustion cars in the foreseeable future, are we going to make that happen by buying Chinese vehicles? Hmm. Because that's the most cost-effective way to do so for American consumers. What do you think? I think that's a really hard pill to swallow.
2: So what would you suggest from a policy standpoint?
0: From a policy perspective, how fast do we need to push the drive towards EVs? How much do we need to accelerate that at a moment in time where the US companies, your Fords and GMs are still trying to catch up with Tesla? And Tesla has one great asset. Elon is a phenomenal entrepreneur. And I think that don't lose sight of the fact that Tesla makes a great car, but there's an opportunity at Tesla to create the software platform for the future of automobiles. Hmm. The self-driving car, good chance will first happen at Tesla.
2: Um, speaking of policy, I alluded that we were going to talk a little politics. We may need a music change, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep Or is keep this going to be like through. the funeral song? <laughs> um, in the fall, it was reported that you were contemplating supporting Nikki Haley for president. Did you ultimately support her? And what's your thinking in this current post-Iowa, post-New Hampshire cycle?
0: So here's, here's the big picture. We're down to to two people on the Republican side running for president. I have supported Nikki Haley. I think she is a tremendous candidate. And I've been pretty consistent. I wish on both sides we would have a candidate of a younger generation. Now, big picture, Trump's running on a record of success. His four years were really good policies for America. And to be clear, I think a lot of Americans want a safer world. And I think we all felt safer with Trump as president than we do right now. I mean, we, we've got a war in the Ukraine. We've got a terrible situation in the Middle East. I think the United States has failed to demonstrate strength and commitment to our allies in a way that has really undermined the global order. So I know many of us, and me included, you know, struggle with some of Trump's behaviors, but there was a dimension of greater global security with him as president, particularly from U.S. interests. So I think that's a, that's a really important tailwind that he's enjoying right now. And then frankly, for all the talk of, of, the, of Trump taking away our democracy, I gotta tell you, American voters are really disturbed by what happened in Colorado. They took him off the list of candidates. I mean, like, wow, Republicans fight for whether or not you show up with an ID to vote, and the Democrats just remove the, the opponent from the ballot. That's a, that's a really dark world. So I think Trump's got both the benefit of, of having the proven success that he had as president, the sense of global insecurity that makes voters anxious, and he, he I mean, to be blunt, he's the martyr right now. You know, he is under criminal, uh, 90-some different felony charges. His name's been removed from ballots. It's, it's hard not to feel some level of just like, this is just wrong. This is just unfair, and frankly, as a voter, I want my vote to determine who is the president and not some clever legal maneuvers by somebody on the opposing aisle, side of the aisle. So it's, it's a really interesting moment, and then you know, frankly, I think Nikki Haley would run away with the general election. I Do think you think
2: she, at this point she still has a pathway to getting the nomination?
0: It, it, it's a narrower road than it was eight weeks ago. It's just narrower. And I think part of this is, is fueled by the, by the geopolitical backdrop, the events recently in the Middle East over the, even the last couple of days, right? We, we now have dead Americans, three, three Americans killed in service. That's heartbreaking. And I think there's a sense of, of do we want to return to a president who's just viewed as more powerful, more in charge? And that's going to be difficult for Nikki to overcome right now. Her poise? admirable her foreign policy experience tremendous her ability to unite this country phenomenal I just don't know though that at this moment that's gonna get her where she needs to get to in South Carolina and thereafter
2: in a Trump Biden matchup would you support Trump
0: I Would probably um, be where the prior group said 70% of Americans don't want that matchup I'm in the
2: 70% (laughs) so Maybe you'll sit this one out?
0: Uh, You know what, here's here's the big picture. And I've said this to my friends who are involved in politics. You can be frustrated, you can be angry, you can be disappointed, but you can't be uninvolved. So I've been involved in a number of the Senate races, a number of the House races. I'll be very deeply involved here in Florida and Florida races locally. Just because we can struggle with who our choice of president is, doesn't mean that we have to walk away from the field. You know, there's people like David McCormick running in Pennsylvania. David has served our nation, West Point grad, successful in business. He would bring to D.C. the gravitas that we want. Gravitas.
2: Worked in this industry.
0: Worked in this industry. Don't hold that against him. <laughs> but he would bring the gravitas that we want in people who serve in public service. He, he put his life on the line for the country. That's what we want in D.C., people that will put America first. So I'm I'm gonna be very involved in in a variety of the Senate races and House races where I I hope to support people who are aligned with America first.
2: So potentially not the White House, but congressional races. Congressional races,
0: senatorial races, and, and races here in my state of Florida.
2: What's the number one policy that you're focused on right now that's driving this involvement?
0: Economic freedom. What does that mean? That means that when you graduate from high school, you can pursue, whether it's going to college, or the career that you wanna pursue. That you have the choice of what to do with your time. You can work 30 hours a week, you can work 70 hours a week. You can be a small business owner, you can work for a large company, you have choice. And people, people look at it and go like, well, what's that mean? In France, it was illegal to work more than 35 hours a week for a long time. That meant that if you wanted to save money to buy your first house, you know what? You couldn't put in the extra hours and make it happen. You wanted to take that once in a lifetime vacation, you didn't have that choice. Like, people forget this fact that socialism is not freedom. It sounds great on paper, but when turned into reality, it's just taking away choices from people. And that's really important to me that we protect people's right to pursue the lives they want to pursue free speech, good schools, good careers, safe streets and a strong national defense. These are things that we should be looking for in our political leadership.
2: In terms of um, you know, geopolitical climate right now, we talked about um, you know, the Middle East briefly. How focused are you on the potential for the situation there to spread more broadly? Obviously, we you know experienced over the weekend uh, three service members who were tragically killed uh, US troops that were tragically killed in Jordan. Um, It feels like things are kind of ricocheting higher in terms of just overall dialogue. But policymakers say they don't want a war here in the US. So how do you, as a business leader, how do you, as someone who, who runs money, how do you think about what's going on in the Middle East?
0: Well, so, you know, as, as you're well aware, we have a very large commodities trading business. So this is a, a very important topic for us. What is the access to global, to, to oil for the world from the Middle East? What's the ability to ship products through the, the various routes in the Middle East? Here's the big picture. The United States does not want, to want, does not want widespread war in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia does not. Qatar does not. United Arab Emirates does not. And to be blunt, I don't think Iran does either. Like, I don't think any of the major powers in the Middle East are actually looking for a path to war. I think they want an off-ramp to peace. Now, this doesn't mean that there are not a large number of groups of fanatics that are involved in in various skirmishes right now and they have the air cover to do so. And it's important that the United States pushes back extraordinarily aggressively against these, these these fanatics. That's it's, it's what we have to do. And the bottom line is America's resolve will be tested here, and we need to be rock solid that we will not be flustered or dissuaded from maintaining the peace in the Middle East. And the good news is a number of the countries there are either explicitly aligned with us or secretly hope to maintain peace in the region.
2: So then you agree with with Biden and his assessment that, you know, they don't want war, um, but they will figure out a way to retaliate and attenuate the various proxy wars that are, are seemingly targeting US troops.
0: And, and, and this is where you have the difference between policy that is, let's call it reasonably close to target, and yet the manifestation of that power being viewed as weak. I don't think Biden intimidates our enemies in the least. So even though we may be directionally right on the right course to pursue, we don't manifest our commitment to doing whatever it would take to protect American interests and American lives.
2: And some of that is just words, words of intimidation,
0: I mean, a certain don't, posture. To be blunt, posture matters, words matter. And, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the President of the United States, he does not convey strength.
2: Um, you know, we talked about you as a, a political donor. Let's talk about you as a philanthropic, uh, philanthropic. there we go. I know, it's one of those Donor's words like, that's just like too many, <laughs> too many syllables. Too many syllables. You probably say it quite frequently. Um, in terms of Harvard, you are one of the biggest donors to Harvard. Uh, after October seventh, you publicly condemned the signatories of a letter that placed blame squarely uh, of those terrorist attacks squarely with Israel. And as a result, there was a sizable protest recently of Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center, where you recently made a donation. What do you make of, of all of this that's happening at Harvard, that's happening you know. In response to other places that you've been donating, kind of what's going through your head right now?
0: I, I mean, the, the fact that people protested at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where humanity wages war against cancer, tells you just how sick these fanatics are. It just says it all. And there is, there is no room in my world for anti Semitism and for calls for genocide. There's just not. And it was heartbreaking to me to watch the testimony in front of Congress when asked a very simple question about how would you react to calls for genocide on campus. I mean, this is a simple answer. You can ask my lawyers, but I'm going to tell you as the president of fill-in-the-blank university, there is no tolerance for calls for genocide on my campus. And so the real question is, Is will America's, and I'm going I'm to choose a word here carefully, America's elite university get back to the roots of educating American children, young adults, to be the future leaders of our country, or are they going to maintain being lost in the wilderness of microaggressions, a DEI agenda that seems to have no real end game, and, and just being lost in the wilderness. Like, which way are we gonna pick? Are we gonna educate the the future members, the House and the Senate and the leaders of IBM? Or are we gonna educate a group of of young men and women who are just caught up in a rhetoric of oppressor and oppressee, and this is not fair, and frankly, just like whiny snowflakes. Like, where are we going with education in elite schools in America? And that's a really big issue.
2: What does that mean for you in terms of, of continuing to support the university? I know that after, um, you know, in response to the signatories that, that placed the blame squarely with Israel for the terrorist attacks, um, you said you wouldn't hire anyone from any of those groups. Do you still feel that way? No, I,
0: I precisely said I would not hire any of the signatures, anybody who signed Signatory. the letter, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's very easy to be a member of a club. You show not, up for no. drinks and you didn't know, you didn't partake, you weren't asked. And I, I think for those students to be dragged into this is just wrong. Like, they, they're their own people, they can make their own decisions. They're not all, don't paint them all with the same brush. But if you sign that letter, no, I'm, I'm not gonna hire you. I don't have to.
2: And are you, <laughs> are you still supporting Harvard financially?
0: No. <laughs> And and I'd like that to change. And I've I've made that clear to members of the, uh, the corporate board. But until Harvard makes it very clear that they're going to resume their role as educating young American men and women to be leaders, to be problem solvers, to take on difficult issues, I'm not interested in supporting the institution.
2: Um, since this is an audience of the hedge fund community, I, I thought we could take a minute to talk about just the industry overall. Um, and if we could, we could pivot to Ken Griffin, the, the businessman. Citadel earned um, the most it became the most profitable hedge fund in 2023, earning 8.1 billion for investors and 74 billion since inception in 1990. What do you think are the key drivers of that? I I ask because I, in preparation for today's Fireside, I spoke with um, some employees, some former employees on background, and they kind of, they said it was your ability to pivot, to change, to change quickly. Is that still possible at the size you're at? And where do you see kind of the key needs for change to occur, uh, you know, to maintain this level of profitability? and maintain this stature in the hedge fund community?
0: So, so I, you know, I, I'm going to be right to the point. That ability to pivot is, is foundationally a testament to having the right people around you. And we have an incredible team at Citadel that when we do find ourselves offsides, we can find our way back to where we need to get to. So the the ability to pivot is not something that is orchestrated from on above, but it reflects the depth of talent within our team. And that talent base has never been stronger in the 30-some years of the history of the firm.
2: Hmm. So where are you focusing your talent in anticipation of potential needs as you look at things like artificial intelligence, as you look at things like just overall competition in this space?
0: So, you know, what's funny is, is, is I love this moment because I have all these like uh, individuals in their late 20s and they're like, I mean, it's so competitive these days. And, you know, how are we going to be successful? And I, I don't have sometimes the heart to tell them. You could take a tape recorder from any point in time in the last 30 years and record the exact same conversation.
2: Mm.
0: Like it always feels insanely competitive to every single generation at every moment in time it's always gonna be competitive because the US capital markets and the global capital markets are insanely competitive. Like number one, is if you're gonna be in the business of managing money, it's, it's the rules of engagement, you have to beat the market and the market is insanely competitive. Now the team at Citadel has the huge advantage that when you're competing with the market, you get to debate your ideas with some of the brightest people in the world and that always always allows us to end in a better place in our decision making that fulsome debate that we have in our four walls really helps to hone the decisions that we make when we deploy capital and so from my vantage point we've never been better positioned competitively because our team has never been stronger
2: Hmm. yeah someone told me a a story I, I guess you gave to a, a group of employees where you said that uh, you know, quant strategy is great, but at some point all the other computers can catch up and they can figure out you know, what your computer is doing and, and your advantage is, is no longer there. And so it's kind of this, this idea that you constantly have to be evolving. Um, you know, speaking of computers, what do you make of what's going on with artificial intelligence right now both from an investing standpoint, as well as a a tool that you use within your organization?
0: So we do use AI quite a bit at Citadel. We've been using machine learning since TensorFlow was announced about a decade ago. And we are a very, very significant user of machine learning techniques across all of our our primary market-making businesses today. I think, though, you cannot underestimate the value of AI for small business owners. You know, I mean, I'll just give you, a, a. this is like a real example. We're, we're redoing our, our processes, procedures for a variety of our, of our technology problems. And just in front of ChatGPT, write the procedures for backing up an NFS file system. And boom, here come the 10 things you need to do.
2: Mm. Into ChatGPT.
0: Into ChatGPT. Mm. Now, was it as detailed as the list that we have internally? No but was it incredibly well-structured? Did it hit all the salient points? Yes. So if you're a small business owner, being able to use CHAP GPT to help you you think about how do you run your business, what processes do you need, how do you think about marketing or customer acquisition or or managing your data centers, that's just a huge amount of value being unlocked.
2: Hmm. What do you make of all the flows of capital into multi-strategy funds in particular? Again, in, in preparation, I talked to a competitor of yours who, who was worried that, um, as they described it, kind of tier two, tier three multi strat funds, if there were some sort of blow up, it could create collateral damage for, for everybody else. Is that something that worries you?
0: So, I mean, of, of course it does. There's, there's certainly a high correlation of holdings amongst hedge fund managers, whether they're multi managers or single manager funds. The hedge fund community tends to, over time, identify the similar, same opportunities and this means that when there's an exogenous shock, people are often trying to exit the same trades at the same time. Now, your most successful firms get to those opportunities earlier. They make more money as others appreciate the opportunity and they'll often exit earlier because the value's been realized. So for your market leaders, in some sense, other hedge funds are a source of how you exit the positions that you acquire. Keep that in mind. But it does mean that holistically, that there's a level of, of interconnectedness within the industry from holdings that are held across the industry. Is this, does this give rise to systemic risk? Probably not, probably not you know the mutual funds will have very large cross holdings and the biggest cross holding today is an S&P index product i mean you think about how much money is in S&P index funds and the cross holding risk associated with that that dwarfs dwarfs the risk within the hedge fund industry
2: where do you see the biggest systemic risk right now
0: the the biggest systemic risk right here right now is actually not right here right now it's 7 years out it's 10 years out hmm. it's that moment in time where if the U.S. government does not put its spending back on track, we could have a moment where there's a loss of confidence in the creditworthiness of the United States of America.
2: And that's as soon as seven to 10 years from now. Absolutely. And what would that do writ large?
0: Depends how big that shock is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If it's a momentary crisis like the U.K. saw roughly two years ago, unsettling, maybe wakes up Washington to get its house in order, but if, if it's not momentary, if it becomes a true crisis, it would mean a real diminution in standard of living for all Americans. And to be clear, the retirees will pay the biggest price.
2: In an election year, do you think it's possible to get a, a fiscal house in order? Uh, we, think, we were talking with someone yesterday who mentioned just the sheer number of incumbents and the number of elections across the world, uh, and an incumbent uh, an incumbency where the popularity has just like low by historical standards, just across the world. Um, and they said that, you know, because of that, the low popularity, uh, incumbents are, are spending. They're making promises. They want to make sure that, you know, there, there's dollars in people's pockets in order to get reelected.
0: So, so buying votes is very popular these days. We do have a 6% deficit. And and frankly, both parties are guilty of it. But it's not sustainable. And that's where leadership like Macron in France is really commendable. I mean, he made some really tough decisions about how to put France on a much more sustainable path. He'll pay a price for it politically, but history will judge him kindly for doing so.
2: Hmm. Um, Since we're here at an MFA conference, I want to talk about regulation. I know it's top of mind for you. Um, What are the, the key regulation focal points that you think the government should be focused on, and what do you think is just out there, not helpful, uh, could do more harm than good? Well, let's,
0: let's take a huge step back. Forty percent of the U.S. equity market represents companies backed by venture capitalists. And they account for two-thirds of all spending on research and development. All right. It is why Americans enjoy the standard of living that we enjoy. The, the a level of innovation and creativity that takes place in our country, and people coalescing around ideas and turning them into businesses like Amazon is, is truly part of the American culture and ethos that's so precious.
1: You
0: know, If you look at the difference between the United States and Europe, Europe's educational system is outstanding it does not translate into the success stories that we have in this this country. And our capital markets are a really important part of that success story. Venture capital would not be at the scale it's at if you could not take companies public. Google was never gonna be sold to a strategic buyer. Mm -hmm. It was going to go public. And every time we make it more difficult, more expensive, and less attractive to be public, we're reducing part of the magic cycle that occurs in the United States with entrepreneurs and venture capitalists starting the businesses that create the future of our country.
2: Do you think it's prohibitive for companies to go public in this environment?
0: Well, we have- There's we, the Jobs
2: Act and um, you know, let me direct t- listings and all sorts of other innovations surrounding-
0: IPOs are down roughly 90%. The number of public companies has been in freefall for the last 30 years. There's 650 unicorns that are not public. So I don't need to tell you what I think, I can just tell you the numbers, you can conclude yourself. Mm -hmm. And this is where I think Gary Gensler and the team at the SEC have lost the narrative. The narrative should be, how do we encourage American business formation? How do we make sure that we create the next Microsoft, the next Amazon, the next Nvidia? That creates so many jobs and so much the way of consumer benefit and welfare. I don't know why we can't seem to get this point made in this administration. This administration seems very focused on regulations that reduce the access to public market capital, make it more difficult to be an active manager, make it more expensive to run a business, whether it's a public company, private equity fund, or otherwise. I mean, it will have an effect, okay? We will all be more equal, and we will all be poorer.
2: Would you ever take Citadel public?
0: In this environment? I, I don't think so. Like, why, why would I take Citadel public? Maybe one day. I mean, maybe one day. I, I just, like, what's the compelling story? I get, to, I get to answer to more regulators, more litigation. I, sign me up. <laughs>
2: Well, sadly, we are out of time. I know we could continue this for another- We can't th- end on that th- comment. I know, okay. <laughs> it's
0: just not fair.
2: It's not fair. Um, That's not,
0: I, let, me, let me flip this around. Good regulation encourages job creation. Good regulation makes America competitive with China. Good regulation will allow us to be a richer country, and a richer country will have the financial resources to pay for education, to pay for national defense, and to provide for really great retirements for people who have served our country in the workforce or otherwise in public service. That should be the point of the SEC. That's where we need to course correct. We need to go back to basics. What do we need to do to protect American competitiveness and to make sure that America prospers?
2: I think that's a good summary of this whole conversation. So thank you very thank much. You so much and really appreciate it.
1: That's Leslie Picker with Citadel's Ken Griffin in Miami. You can watch more of that live exclusive interview right now on CNBC.com. Interesting comments and a reminder of just how influential Ken is when it comes to national politics and fundraising. More interesting, though, was the discussion of a potential global depression, in his words, if, in fact, there were to be an all-out war between China and Taiwan, and what would happen if our Supply of chips got cut off.
2: Yeah, I mean, in nobody's interest, he says, U.S. or China's, but especially in the U.S., a global depression, right? It would t- how many days before Tesla would have to stop making EVs? Just as an example, he threw out there as far as how destructive and catastrophic it would be. Um, so that is clearly a big risk that he's thinking of. And then in, in politics, it was notable that he said he's been supporting Nikki Haley, and he spoke very fondly of her, but, but said that the path for her getting the nomination winning the primary has narrowed, given President Trump is, as he says, and he's said this many times, a martyr now, because he's facing all of these these charges. He's kind of dodged the, I would vote for Trump over Biden, if that was the two, because he wants younger candidates. He said, like, 70 percent of Americans doesn't want to see that match up, right. but is, is working toward local races instead.
1: He is in the soft landing <laughs> camp, uh, says unlikely we get another hike, but uh, sees the first cut potentially coming this summer. Right